Hey guys, thanks for checking out today's message. We're so glad that you joined us. We consider resources like this one to be supplemental. So if you not have a church home and live in the greater Savannah area, we would love to invite you to one of our locations. If you're blessed by today's message and would like to invest into the life and ministry of City Church, you can do so by visiting citychurch.life and clicking give. Our hope is that you'll be blessed and encouraged as we dive into today's message. So this week, we're in week two. We started last week with the good news, the gospel. Uh, Last week, we were talking about the king is coming. Today, the king is here. And last week's message laid the groundwork and set things in place. And just to remind you, the Jewish people knew God's word. I don't know how much you read God's Word. I don't know how much time you invest in God's Word. But you can't do too much. You can't spend too much time in God's Word. Because if you will feast on God's Word, it will be in you. Like rivers of living water. It will come alive in you. These people knew God's Word. These people studied it. They memorized enormous sections of God's Word that really intimidates me to think of how much of God's Word they would memorize, commit verbatim to memory. They knew about the Son of David. They understood the bloodline. I don't know if we quite grasped that. Jim laid it out last week. I just remind you, they were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for a coming king. That coming king had to be a descendant of David the king. They understood that. God did not plan on them having a king. God wanted to rule them. God did rule them, but they wanted to be like everybody else. They wanted somebody that could take care of them, and they asked for a king. It didn't please God, but he set it up, and he allowed it to happen. And if you remember, their first king was Saul. Saul had major character flaws, and he was not successful, and he was replaced with a man named David. Now, while David had... His own experience with moral failure, the thing that encourages me about David, although he wasn't perfect, he also had an experience of repentance, remorse, and restoration. And because he was a man after God's own heart, because he pleased God, because he sought after God, God promised that his descendant from his bloodline would be the one who sits on the throne. That's who they were looking for. The other thing Jim did last week is he managed to do the obligatory reference to Star Wars. He's the master at bringing Star Wars in. Uh, I'll tell you what, if you don't know this about me, I'll just be real, and and I'll risk somebody getting them walking out the door right now. I'm I'm not a fan of Star Wars. I don't don't mean I don't enjoy the movie, don't run run for the door. I just mean I've seen all of them but one, I know three or four, five maybe of the, no, that'd be precedent. Probably three major characters I can name by name, and I'd probably get that wrong. Uh, I enjoy it. I, I get it. Some of the story plots started making sense over time. But let me give you this. Okay, I, was, I don't even remember what year it came out. But when the first one came out, and when the first one came out, it was, what was the title? Exactly. So I went to the theater, and I saw Star Wars. So years later, our 22-year-old son, Josh, when I think it was the sixth movie in the series, maybe, came out, he wanted to see it. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. You got to see the first one first. I see, you got to see them in sequence. And I knew that I'd seen, I think, the first two, but at least maybe the third three, I don't know. So anyway, I went down to Blockbuster Videos. That's how far back that was. And I'm walking through Blockbuster Video, and I'm looking for Star Wars. Young man comes up and says, can I help you? I said, yeah, I'm looking for Star Wars. He went, the Empire Strikes Back? And I went, no, Star Wars. And we went back and forth, and he looked at me really confused, and I looked even more confused, and I went home with nothing. 
I went back to work the next day and somebody who knew the whole series went, well, Jim, you don't understand. They started with number whatever and they went and they did number whatever. I've got the whole series. Take this home and watch it with your son. And we sat there and binge watched every one of them up to the last one at that point. But that's just not my cup of tea. I get it. I enjoy it. But my cup of tea is more like Braveheart, Gladiator, all right? Dances with Wolves. It's not that I'm eat up with watching people die on the screen, but there's something about it, although Brenda would tell you I probably am. What is it we love about those movies? We love the fact that a man or a woman come together with other men or women and it rise up against overwhelming, insurmountable obstacles, and they rise to the challenge. And some of them will sacrifice and die along the way, but they win in the end, and it just stirs something in me. But for me, it's more the historical-type movies than the whatever... Star Wars fits into it. I don't even know what the genre would be called. But that's giving you a little insight into me. But the point being is we all enjoy movies. Probably nobody in the room, maybe, most everybody will enjoy a good movie. And when you see a good movie, you want other people to see that movie. You want to share the experience. You want to tell people about the movie. You, you, you find yourself saying things like, oh, you got to go see this movie. I saw it last week, and it's all about this. And then you, you want to tell them, but you don't want to tell them the end because you don't want to spoil it. Because who likes seeing a movie that you already know the ending? It's no fun, unless you've seen it before and you just really want to watch it again. The point being, we've entered into the Passion Week. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time whatsoever, you know this story. You know it in great detail. You understand it. You have good grasp of it. And it's really easy to check out and just go, okay, it's, it's Easter again. We're going through the series. But what I say to you this morning, if you, if you really know the story, if you know how it ends, how, mu how much more are we responsible for what we do with it and how we respond to it? Today's Palm Sunday. What in the world does that mean? What does Palm Sunday mean? And what does it mean to me? And how does it affect me? Why do they even call it Palm Sunday? If you go to Israel, they do have palm trees. Uh, but at least in my mind, and I didn't realize I was thinking this way until I was there last time, I'm still in my mind, I'm thinking palm trees. And when I think palm trees, I think, you know, however tall they are on tropical islands with coconuts on the top. And that's not what they have. They don't, they don't have coconut palm trees. They have date palms. And, and anywhere they can irrigate, they grow them all over. But in Jesus' time, they must have been growing everywhere. But what does it mean to me? Why do they even call it Palm Sunday? What we've done is we've entered into what we call Passion Week. Passion Week was a week of events that led up to the most monumental event in history. The death, the resurrection, the death and crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, the Christ. And what that means for us is beyond my ability to express. But this week started off on day one, and day one would have been Friday of this week. Day one, Jesus arrives in a little town called Bethany. Bethany, all of these events that we're going to talk about happen in a little small section of a small country named Israel. If you go down over to the western side of the Dead Sea and blow that up, and I tried to get it where you can see it, Jerusalem's where the culmination of everything happens, but it starts off in a little town named Bethany next to Bethpage, about a mile and a half to two miles away from Jerusalem, just on the other side of the Mount of Olives. It's all within a very short walking distance. 
So on day one, Jesus shows up in a town named Bethany. It's all going to happen in John chapter 12. That's where we're going to be today if you've got your Bible. Jesus arrives. Passover is about to start. He's staying with his friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And remember, Lazarus has just recently been raised from the dead. So they're sitting there at the house, and Martha's in the kitchen. She's preparing food, like Martha seems to always do. That seems to be her gift, her redemptive calling. And then there's Lazarus and Jesus reclining at the table. They're sharing a meal. And in comes Mary. Mary takes pure nard, opens it up, and starts washing and anointing his feet with it, and washing it with her hair. This is not normal behavior. This is tremendously reckless use of something. You ever been in a room where somebody broke a bottle of perfume or walked through a store? It's overwhelming. The house must have reeked, absolutely reeked with this smell. I wonder what I would have said. I wonder what I would have done, what I, how I would have reacted We know how Judas Iscariot acted because the scripture records it for us. But what in the world is she thinking? What is she doing? Judas Iscariot, he said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? It sounds noble. That sounds like somebody who really cares about people. It's about a year's wages, 300 denarii. An average worker got a denarii per day, so 300 denarii, almost a year's pay. I thought about that, and I'm not going to throw a number out because I don't know what the standard average yearly wage in America is, and it would differ all over, but you can throw a number to it. What was that worth? Sounds noble. Sounds like he cares about people, but what we know from Scripture is he was a thief. He kept the money bag. He wanted that money in the money bag so he could steal from it. He could pilfer from it. So he used noble words to try to sound good. What in the world? Why is this so wasteful? It could have been used for something better. And then Jesus speaks up. And he says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you'll not always have me. And then we shift from day two to day, from day one to day two. Day two would have been the Sabbath yesterday, Saturday. The Gospels does they don't record anything about the Saturday events, the Sabbath, the second day of the Passion Week. We can assume that Jesus was with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, so they would have probably uh, observed it in the traditional manner. But somewhere between day one and day two, somewhere in those events, those two days, the crowd of people had found out that Jesus was in Bethany and they followed him there and started to show up. When a large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Get this. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well because account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. That verse has always amazed me. How religiously dead, how how spiritually, excuse me, how spiritually dead does a person have to be to plan the murder of someone God raised from the dead to protect my position of authority? That's what they were doing. Let's kill him. 
Because people are believing in Jesus because they see this dead guy walking around that he raised. Jesus had just recently raised him from the dead. John records it in chapter 11. So it had been really soon before these events came together. And the news had to have spread like wildfire. Okay, now think about this. I know you've heard the message. You've read the word. You've heard about it. But Lazarus had been dead for four days. He was already in the tomb. He had already started to decompose. When Jesus showed up late on purpose, he shouted out or spoke out. He prayed out loud so people could hear it. He said, not for his benefit, but for theirs, so they'd know he's talking to God. And then he said, Lazarus, come forth. And a man who'd been dead for four days, who'd started to stink, hopped out to the entrance of the tomb alive. How excited would you have been? How excited were they? This is it. This has got to be the Messiah. He's got to be the one. Nobody had ever even heard of something like this. Now he started heading to Jerusalem. But what time is it? They thought it was time for a king. They thought it was time for a worldly king, a political ruler, somebody who was going to set the stage for what they had been waiting for. This is really exciting. Finally, a king is going to come in, set the stage, and set things up the way they should be. Because remember, they'd been under Roman occupation probably about 250 years at this point. They were ready to be restored as a nation that could put their enemies down. That's what they were believing for. That's what they wanted. Finally, somebody's going to come in here and fix this who can fix this. This is it. The ecstatic is what they were. So we go into day three. In day three... They're heading from Bethany, Bethpage, across the Mount of Olives, over into the Temple Mount. Remember, this is less than two miles. And all four gospel writers record it. This is one of the most monumental events in history next to the crucifixion. This is the triumphal entry. It's the first day of the week. It's Sunday. The words they were shouting, the actions that they responded, they were recognizing Jesus as their Messiah, the King. And they were, they were, he allowed them to do it. In fact, it's the very first and only time that Jesus allowed people to recognize him as King. And John 12, verse 12 through 14 says that the next day, this is the third day, this is Sunday morning. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as is written. Once you try to capture this in your mind, John 12, 15, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So what, have you ever thought about this? What is this all about? When you read this, have you ever had these thoughts? Why did they place their coats on the ground? And why are they holding palm branches? And why should I care? They're doing that because these things in and of themselves are extremely significant. When you talk about taking your coat off, your cloak, and throwing it on the ground, it wasn't just an act of of respect or an act of honor to somebody. This was something that was done for royalty. 
And I can say that because we find it one other place in Scripture. We find it in 2 Kings chapter 9. This was submission to a person of royalty. 2 Kings 9 and 13 is when Jehu was anointed king. Now, if you remember the story, and I'm only going to briefly mention it, Jehu was not king, but he was anointed king. Elijah sends one of the sons of the prophets to where Jehu's at. He's meeting with some other men. They're sitting in a room. The son of the prophet comes in and says, I have something to say to you. They step into a private room, and he anoints him king and runs. He runs because what he just did was an act of treason because there's somebody else still sitting on the throne. But see, God has... Tired him is tired of this evil that's in the nation, and he's ready to clean house. So now he's anointed Jehu to start moving things forward. Jehu walks back into the room with them, oil dripping off his head, and they go, what in the world did he say to you? He downplays it, but they're not having it. They want to hear. So finally he tells them. He said, they say, and this is not true, tell us now. And he said, thus and so he spoke to me, saying, thus says the Lord, I anoint you king of Israel. Watch how they respond. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment, put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed Jehu as king. It's an act of recognition of royalty. It's setting the stage for the king to walk on. When Jesus walked into Jerusalem, or when he rode into Jerusalem, if you will, on the donkey, the people were waiting for somebody to reset them to their glory days. They were waiting for a real king, someone who would come in and take the throne, and they cut down palm branches as well. So what's the palm branches about? Well, John 12, 13 tells us they were palm branches, not just branches, but he also, John, interestingly enough, in the book of Revelations, talks about palm branches. In Revelation 7, verse 9 through 10, John writes much later than these events. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God and sits, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So here's John comparing, if you will, future events with current events and palm branches are in both of these. This is, I hope that you hear this this morning. At least what I see in this, this is the collision of prophecy past, prophecy forward, and the current events that were happening that day all colliding at a little town named Jerusalem as God sets the stage and puts things in place for the most monumental event that ever occurred on the planet. Palm branches even take us backward in time. When they had the Feast of Booths back in the Old Testament, the Feast of Tabernacles, it was a time when they commemorated or it celebrated God bringing them out of Egypt, out of slavery. And they would go out and they would build, if you will, a booth or uh, an outside dwelling and they'd build it out of palm branches. And Leviticus 23 verse 40 sets this up for us. It says, you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. It was a celebration. We had been slaves for 430 years. Now we're free, and this is the way we get together every year, and we come and we celebrate that event, and it lasted seven days. This is, if you will, kind of a new celebration of being set free. We were once slaves of sin. They had been literal slaves. 
So at the triumphal entry, Christ is being celebrated as the one who brings his people out of slavery. So why does Jesus want to ride a donkey? Why the lowly donkey? Why not a magnificent stallion, a war horse? Something that would really be impressive. He set the stage for this on purpose. And the book of Luke captures this for us. In Luke 19, verse 29 to 36, he purposely wanted a donkey. It says, when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mountain that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you. Where on entering, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those that were sent away went and found just as they had been told. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. So Luke 19 records that Jesus on this little one and a half to two mile journey to Jerusalem stops, sends them to get a donkey because he needs a donkey. What does he need a donkey for? Why a donkey instead of a horse? Because Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah 9.9 said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Look, horses are mentioned in the Bible, but when horses are mentioned in the Bible, it's almost in a, uh, some type of reference to war. It's a king equipped for battle, ready for war, going into battle, and that's not how Jesus entered Jerusalem at this time. But in Revelation, he will come on a horse. In John's book, Revelation 19, verse 11, says that then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. And the one setting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. That day's coming. But that's not that day for the triumphal entry. If you read chapter 19 of Revelation, John's description of Jesus is no baby in a manger and it's nobody nailed to a cross. He's a fierce warrior. Some of the words that he uses are his eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. His clothes He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the armies of heaven were following him on white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword for which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, and on his robe and on his thighs a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. He's coming that way one day, and we're going to be with him. But that wasn't how he came when he came to Jerusalem. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem, they were waiting for a political leader to reset the stage for their expectation. But Jesus came in peacefully, riding on a donkey. The only blood he shed was his own. He was signifying peace. So what's the whole Hosanna about? Why were they shouting Hosanna? What did it mean? What they were doing was reciting words from Psalm 118. Part of Psalm 118 says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So Hosanna, what does it mean? It's a Hebrew word. Hosanna means 
Oh, save. It's a plead. It's a desire. God, save us. It's also an exclamation of adoration. It's a Hebrew word. Save us is simply saying Hosanna. And we talked about earlier when I started, I was talking about how much of the God's word the Jewish people just knew verbatim. No better way to put this than the Feast of Tabernacles and some of the other celebrations that they did yearly, they would literally recite verbatim out loud Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. And this is in part of Psalm 118. They knew the word. They knew what they were supposed to be looking for. They knew who was supposed to be coming. It had been an appeal for deliverance. It became an expression of joy. And when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that donkey that day, it just came from their lips because it was the day. This was the day. This was it. Daniel predicted this. Daniel told us the day. You can look into this if you want to. I don't have time to go into this. But a man named Daniel in about 530 B.C. wrote the book of Daniel. And in the book of Daniel... Chapter 9, verse 25 through 27, foretells 500 plus years before he rode into Jerusalem the day that he would ride into Jerusalem. And a man named Sir Arthur, let me get his name right, uh, Robert Anderson. Sir Robert Anderson wrote a book. It's called The Coming Prince. He wrote it in about 1897, I believe. And he did the calculations He went back and he picked the date, not just out of the air, but he came up with the date, March 14, 445 B.C. That's the day that uh, Artaxerxes, king of Persia, gave Nehemiah the command to go back to Jerusalem and build the temple. And then using a Jewish calendar of 360-day years, he calculated from that after verification of that date, and he came up with the day that the Messiah would ride into Jerusalem as April 6, 32 A.D., I'm telling you, if he didn't, if it wasn't Jesus, we missed him. Because he's already come. 32 AD is about is the year that they believe Jesus came in, was the triumphal entry, was crucified, and was resurrected. Now I'm no theologian and I can't validate the calculations that Robert Anderson came up with, and I can't disprove the dates that Robert Anderson came up with, but many scholars have studied over his book, and they pour over it and go over it with great excitement. But I'll tell you this, the point is the religious leaders should have been looking for him. The people should have been looking for him and understanding. They should have recognized the hour of their visitation because it was more than a day, it was the day. This was it. They were in Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. So it's about a week-long event. And then the first of it, the day Jesus rode in on a donkey, was the day I understand that they would pick their sacrificial lamb. There's so many significant events happening at the same time, past, present, actual, spiritual and natural, that it's a collision. You kind of have to pick it apart to see it. And that's what I'm trying to represent to you this morning. This was their day. It's the first time Jesus allowed people to celebrate him as king. But by the end of the week, there was a whole nother shout coming up. And they were screaming for his blood. They were screaming, crucify him. I think because he didn't meet their expectations. The biggest thing I get out of this message 
is it's not up to me, him to meet my expectations. Jesus doesn't owe me anything. He doesn't have to meet Jim McLean's expectations. The point is, I have to die to self and meet his expectations. I have to surrender to him because he is the king. The common people were disappointed. The religious leaders were focused on his death and they wanted to murder the guy he raised from the dead. What do you do when Jesus doesn't meet your desires? There's something you really want God to do. You've been praying about it. You've been asking Him to do it and it just doesn't seem to happen. How do you respond? The people that were present during this event, they still didn't understand it. Even His disciples didn't understand it. John 12, He gives us some insight into this. Verse 16 through 19, as they came riding up, they came into Jerusalem off the Mount of Olives in John 12, 16 to 19. It says his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things have been written about him and they've been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that we're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So John's Chapter 12 there in those verses captures four groups of people. Of those four groups of people, verse 16, there's the disciples. They're the ones that are with him. They know he's Messiah. They know he's the Son of God. They know who he is. And they still didn't understand his intention. They didn't understand the events that were being played out on the stage until later. But also verse 17 tells us there were people in the crowd that had witnessed him raising Lazarus from the dead. They had seen it. They were there. And they were going to follow this guy. Don't know what they were believing. Don't know what they were expecting. But they had seen him raise a man who had been dead for four days. And they were following him in Jerusalem. And they were talking about what they had seen. And then verse 18 tells us there were also those in the crowd who had heard the people who were testifying of seeing Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. They were following. And in my mind, I think they were following going, what's he going to do next? What are we going to see? But there was also a fourth group in that group, and that was in verse 19. They were the religious people, and they were watching closely to make sure that the events that were happening fit into their narrow little view of what they expected God could do, would do, and how He would do it. Everybody that was present had to make a decision as to which group they were going to be a part of. And I get it. I understand. I I understand God blinded them to the events. Isaiah predicted it. He prophesied about it. John even talks about that. I get that. I understand that. It had to happen this way so that Jesus would be crucified. But the people that were there were still responsible for how they responded. Because there are people in the group that do believe. There's people in the group that don't believe. They had the ability to believe. They had the ability to see some of this. Each person had to decide what group they were going to be in. John 12, 37 says that though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. And, and I don't know if that's sadder or this verse, 1242. 1242 says that nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they did not be put out of the synagogue. I understand God had a plan. God set it all in motion. God allowed it to happen. But the people were responsible. And the question really is, how do I respond? How do you respond? The best example to me is the donkey. The donkey had never been ridden. 
The donkey just surrendered. That's my example. Look at the donkey. He just surrendered. Lord, whatever you want to do. I'm surrendered to you. The people rejoiced at his entrance, and the religious leaders tried to shut it down. Luke captures this in 19, verse 37 to 40. As he was drawn near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had, been, had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus, make them stop. I love Jesus' answer. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Last October, Brenda and I were there. We were standing on the Mount of Olives, and it's all close together, and there's rocks everywhere. What Jesus was saying is, if these people don't praise me, these rocks are going to start shouting my praises. Because the king was there, and the king will be praised. We can praise him, or he'll get praised from somewhere else if he has to make the rocks praise him, because he is the king. Jesus is the King of Kings. The Pharisees recognize the significance of what's going on. They saw it. They knew what's going on. They knew about Daniel's prophecy. They knew about the spreading of the clothes on the ground. They understood the palm branches. They understood the shouting of Hosanna. Teacher, make it stop. You need to rebuke your people. Because he didn't fit, fit their expectation. It's got to be somebody else. can't be him. Jesus came as a suffering sacrifice, the Savior for our sin, not the political leader and ruler that they wanted. They rejected his appearance because he didn't fit their plan. How many people have you talked to? Maybe it's been you at some point. Maybe listening this morning, it is you. How many people do you know that have said something to the effect of, I can't ever serve a God that would allow that to happen? I can't ever serve a God that would do that. I don't get to pick my God. He is God. I just get to pick my response to Him. That's the only choice I have. Jesus' invitation was not about what I want. It's about what He expects. And John captures this in chapter 12. He says that during these events, as this was all going on, John chapter 12, verse 23 to 26 says, And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly. I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Listen to the next verse. I can tell you where I was the first time I read this. I was in Kessler Point Apartments over in Garden City. And I read this verse and I thought, what in the world does this mean to me? I was a new Christian and I was devouring God's word. And I read this and it shook me to the core. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Another, again, all I'm saying is it's not up to Jesus to meet my expectations. It's about me meeting his expectations. It's about me saying, yes, Lord. It's about me saying, whatever you want, Lord. God, however you want to do it, I'm willing to die to my desires, my expectations, my list of things, and I want to fulfill your plan, Father. You can hold up a palm branch on Sunday and you can shout Hosanna, but what do you say through the week? That's what's important. 
Before the week was out, there was a different group of people or maybe some of them shouting, crucifying, crucifying, because you didn't fit their expectations. How do we do our week? We can shout on Sunday, but do we reject him through the week? There's a song Brendan and I have been listening to recently, and I just love the song. There's a chorus in it. It's by United Pursuit. The name of the song is Head to the Heart, and the chorus goes like this. It said, there's no shame in looking like a fool when I give you what I can't keep to take a hold of you. Whatever you're trying to hang on to, it's an illusion. If you're trying to be in control of your life, you're fooling yourself. I was a 31-year-old young man over in Kester Point Apartments, and I had it all figured out. I had it under control, and it all fell apart, and I finally fell to my knees inside my bed and cried out to God who I'd been running from. Where are you at? Because he met me right there. He met me there and he transformed my life and changed my life and it's continuing to spread from me through my children, probably to my grandchildren. He's turned my whole life over. It's been almost 30 years now. I don't regret a second of coming to him. I only regret the years I ran from him. I wish I'd come to him sooner. How you respond to him. Anything you're trying to control is just an illusion because you never have been in control. The only thing you control is how you respond to him. We're going to have a response team at the tables in the back. If you don't know him, this is the day. It's not just a day. It's the day. You can respond here. You can be watching online. You can listen to a podcast. You can respond privately where you're at, but don't run from a public gathering because you're ashamed of him. If you're in public, do it public. If you're alone, cry out to him where you're at and find a church and get involved. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning. We love you and we worship you. Lord, you came that we could have life and we could have that life abundantly. And you ask us to surrender ourselves, our plans to you. And what you do with that, Lord, is so much more monumental and so much greater than anything we could have done with it on our own or ourselves. And we praise you and I pray for the person, Lord, here today that doesn't know you. I pray, Lord, for the person watching online who doesn't know you. I pray, Lord, for anyone here who's been wounded or they've rejected or they've been hardened because of events of this life. And I pray, Lord, that you would transform us, that you'd change us, that you would sweep through our city with true revival. And we honor you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.